0: Peculiar time of the year when to know where you are and why you have been kidnapped. Well, the bridge of so the guys who works here and with psycho Welcome to October by May the Short Stories of Edward T. May Presented by James Allen May. I sat down to write this intro, and was planning on letting you know the next episode may either be very short, or very different in content, or perhaps just delayed till the next release day. I have some life stuff happening, and am worried I may not be able to crank out another episode in time. Plus, it seems like right after Halloween is a sensible time to take a little hiatus. I wish I had a more firm announcement, but I'll post on the social medias as soon as I know what the plan is. Anyways, that's all I was planning to say. But then I looked at the calendar and realized the next scheduled episode would be... Tuesday, November 3rd. That's gonna be a crazy day. At first I thought, eh, all the more reason to just not release an episode that day. But then I also thought, wait, a lot of people are really gonna want a distraction, so... Maybe I need to release an episode that day. Anyways, thanks for letting me think out loud and give you that quasi-update. Always feel free to reach out over social media or email me at octoberbymay at gmail.com and let me know what you think. I think Tuesday, November 3rd will be a day that most people are shuttered up inside their homes, terrified of what is going on outside the safety of their locked doors and shuttered windows. Many will just be looking forward to the night being over while they waited out in the company of their loved ones. Tommy Dillon is about to have a similar night with the Allen family. Though it is Halloween night, the children are not excitedly preparing for trick-or-treating, and the parents aren't on their way to a festive party. The family is acting as though it's any other night. Tommy is perplexed by this, but the Allen family knows something Tommy doesn't. They know what happens on Halloween night in their little town. They know to stay home, to not go out, to not even look out the window, and especially not to answer the door. The knock at the door. Most people would agree the setting of a horror story is vital to the success of the story. Although I'm unaware of any statistics relating to the matter, it is my firm belief most people feel a horror story is more frightening when it takes place in a dark and menacing locale. However, I am of the opinion—and I've no doubt it's a minority opinion—that horror stories are far more effective when the action proceeds on terrain the reader views as familiar and comforting. In other words, when a frightening event occurs in a milieu where the event typically does not take place, I believe the effect is thereby intensified. For example, the concept of an unknown entity hiding somewhere in the family home is, to me, infinitely more disconcerting than the image of a partially decomposed corpse shambling through a cemetery. I ask the reader's indulgence for this preliminary discourse, the reason for which will shortly become apparent. I'm not sure what prompted me to try one of those walking tours. I suppose it was one of those things many people feel they must do when they find they're aging quicker than they've realized. The midlife crisis, life is passing me by nonsense. Anyway, I didn't get around to it until the summer was just a memory. The leaves were already on the wing by the time I grabbed a pack, stuffed it with a change of clothing and a wad of cash, and started walking. I saw everything you're supposed to see on those types of tours. I gazed on many a sleepy seaside village and picturesque countryside, while staying at the quaint little inns and rustic bed-and-breakfasts I'd encountered along the way. I'm sure at this point you, the reader, must be saying, How can I take this story seriously when the writer uses these silly stock phrases? After all, where's the originality? Why, I'm quite capable of writing as well as this fellow. Bear with me, patient reader. I'm using these stock phrases in order to construct an atmosphere. By using words such as picturesque, sleepy, quaint, and rustic, I hope to convey to you the banality of my experience. It was also so… so very familiar, so… normal. Not boring, mind you. Just… average. White bread. Vanilla. It was late October when I arrived in a village tucked away in a remote mountain valley. I was greeted warmly by the inhabitants, and while there were no inns per se in the village, I soon found a lodging place. A family by the surname of Allen graciously offered to harbor me as long as I wished to linger in the environs. Jeremy Allen was a veritable bear of a man in terms of physical stature. His abrupt mannerisms and speech tended to leave acquaintances with the impression his ursine characteristics extended to his personality as well. However, it was my considered opinion his gruff behavior was something of a charade, designed to frighten his children into submission. Said behavior fooling no one, least of all his children. Subsequent events confirmed my belief. Jeremy proved to be more of a teddy bear than a grizzly bear. Alison Allen was as dainty as her husband was bulky. Pale and frail, I couldn't imagine how she could survive a single embrace from Jeremy. Kind and amiable, she yet possessed an attribute capable of daunting the most stout-hearted. When more than a monosyllabic response was required of Allison, her voice would steadily rise to a piercing falsetto until it threatened to shatter every window for miles. I sincerely believe the threat of her voice was better able to produce proper behavior in their children than was the threat of any corrective action based on Jeremy's physical prowess. Nine-year-old Jeremy Jr. was known as JJ, With his skin knees, his love of frogs, his hatred of chores, and his seemingly infinite assortment of collections encompassing everything from beer bottle caps to baseball cards, J.J. was as ordinary a boy as could be imagined. Seven-year-old Katie Allen was what we used to call a teacher's pet, and had she gone to my school, my friends and I would have teased her mercilessly. Always trying to gain the acceptance and gratitude of the teacher by tattling on the other children, always bossy. Always rolling her eyes at the least infraction of etiquette, Katie fit the classic mold, much to her brother's chagrin. Not only were the Allens a painfully ordinary family, they owned a house to match. Two-story, two-car garage, white trim, white picket fence, mortgage, etc., etc. The Allen family and the village they lived in was, like my tour, average, white bread, vanilla-flavored. I arrived in the late afternoon. Although it was the 31st of October, the weather was surprisingly balmy and I decided to sit on Jeremy's front porch. I watched as the elderly woman across the street slowly raked the fallen leaves into a pile and set them on fire. She noticed me almost immediately, no doubt because my presence was out of the ordinary, and waved me over. We can still do it this way around here, she informed me with pride. The new houses they build nowadays in the cities can't be built with fireplaces that burn wood. Got to be gas fireplaces. Yes, I know. It's a pity. I enjoy the smell of wood smoke. I told her. Name's Nancy Calloway, the woman said. I introduced myself and clasped her extended hand. Although gnarled with arthritis, Nancy's hand was still able to impart a considerable pressure. I've always been impressed by firm hand clasps. "'Yes, sir,' she continued. "'There's too many rules in the city.' "'I couldn't agree more,' I said. "'Too many people, too,' she added as an afterthought. "'But the rules, they're the worst. "'My dear departed Clarence, God rest his soul, "'would visit his brother in the city every so often. "'When he got back home, he'd tell me about all the new rules "'they'd made since the last time he'd been there.' Ordinances, he called them. Nancy, he'd tell me. Why, it's getting to the point in those big cities where a man can't break wind without getting fined. Of course, he used a more colorful expression, she added with a wink. I found Nancy's candidness most refreshing. We talked for a few moments longer, and then I returned to the Allens' house. That evening, after dinner... The Allen family and I retired to the cozy little room located at the front of the house. JJ and Katie lay down on the floor and commenced their homework. Allison retrieved a novel from the coffee table and began reading. Jeremy sorted through the mail as I glanced at the newspaper. It was relaxing and enjoyable. As the evening progressed, a chill began stalking through the house. Jeremy rose and engineered a comforting blaze in the fireplace. I found it rather odd that the children showed no apparent interest in donning costumes and traipsing off into the night. It occurred to me that, in all probability, Jeremy and Allison disapproved of the custom. I'd known people before who considered Halloween to be a satanic holiday. Perhaps Jeremy and Allison shared that opinion as well. At any rate, it was none of my affair what they believed, and I took up another section of the newspaper as I inched closer to the fire. Shortly after the valley had been enveloped in complete darkness, a hesitant knocking was heard at the front door of the Allen House. Ah, the evening's first group of trick-or-treaters, I thought. The children's heads swiveled in unison toward the door. A few seconds passed before they turned to each other, eyes wide. No words were spoken. Eventually, they devoted their attention once again to their studies. Jeremy and Allison exchanged apprehensive glances, but made no move to respond to the summons. At first, I was disturbed by their attitude. However, after considering the situation, it didn't seem as odd as it had at first blush. Well, of course, I thought. Not only do they refrain from trick-or-treating, they refuse to pass out candy as well. That makes perfect sense. But why the apprehension? Perhaps they are afraid JJ and Katie will feel isolated from the rest of the children. The knocking resumed. A group of three evenly spaced raps. This time, Katie's head turned toward her parents, not the door. JJ, after glancing at the window, began rising to a standing position and was immediately restrained by his mother. Allison said nothing to the boy. A mere shake of her head was enough to send JJ back to his schoolwork. On the other hand, surely this being such a small town, Everyone would know the Alan's disposition towards Halloween. Why would anyone bother coming to their door? I considered. A prank, perhaps? Another series of knocks focused my attention on the door. This time, the knocking was accompanied by a wee voice, gender indeterminate. Trick or treat. The words were spoken softly, edged with uncertainty, and sounded like the meowing of a small kitten. I watched Jeremy as his head snapped toward the door. His hands clenched the arms of his chair with such ferocity, the knuckles began turning white from the effort. Allison stared at the door as well, her arms folded across her midsection, her fingers rapidly plucking at the sleeves of her sweater. Their apprehension, clearly evident at the sound of the first knock, had evolved into... What? Dread? JJ and Katie eyed their parents closely, curious if they would respond to the plea from the other side of the door. I glanced at the door. The knob was... slowly turning, first one way, then the other. Without taking his eyes from the door, Jeremy's hand snaked its way toward the end table located next to his chair and noiselessly opened the drawer. His hand hovered above the yawning drawer, awaiting further developments from across the room. As the knob ceased its motion, Jeremy's hand closed the drawer, as slowly and silently as it had been opened, and returned to the arm of the chair. Jeremy and Allison relaxed somewhat. The caller had apparently departed, but although I listened carefully, I could hear no sound indicative of retreating footsteps. The only audible sound was the crackling of the fire and the ticking of the grandfather clock. Needless to say, I found the entire incident extremely odd and somehow even disturbing. However, being a guest, I felt it was not my place to comment on the situation and remained silent. I couldn't help but think of some of my idiosyncrasies. Strange little quirks others would no doubt find strange, to say the least. These thoughts aided me in my quest to be more charitable, as I considered the behavior of the Allen family. Before long, Allison stood, muttered something about making hot apple cider for everyone... And disappeared into the kitchen. The subsequent clatter of pots and pans seemed normal and, to some extent, reassuring. Jeremy turned his attention to a catalog he'd found in the mail. I selected the section of the newspaper dealing with sports. Ten minutes passed when another knock was heard at the door. Not the sound of knuckles rapping this time, open palms slammed repeatedly against the door in union with a desperate plea for admittance. I immediately identified it as Nancy Calloway's voice. The poor woman sounded hoarse from physical exertion, or fear, or perhaps both. Jeremy! It's Nancy! As I rose from my chair, Jeremy once again opened the drawer of the end table and extracted a pistol. Don't! He warned me. The overwhelming astonishment produced by his actions momentarily robbed me of speech. After a few seconds I recovered. You're not serious? I said, in utter disbelief. "'You have no idea what it's all about,' Jeremy assured me. "'I need help!' Nancy's voice continued. "'Why won't you let me in?' The doorknob rattled. "'How can you listen to that and do nothing?' I asked incredulously. "'That's Nancy out there. She's in trouble of some kind. Just let me see—' "'That's not Nancy,' Jeremy interrupted. "'Have you gone insane, man?' "'What do you mean it's not Nancy? Even I can recognize her voice,' I assured him. "'Jeremy's right. It's not Nancy,' Allison said in a tone of voice dangerously close to hysteria. "'But how can you say—' "'Call her,' Allison said as she pointed at the telephone. "'Her number's on the list next to the phone.' "'It all seemed so absurd. Asking me to call someone I knew perfectly well was on the front porch, not more than fifteen feet away from me?' Nevertheless, I was literally under the gun. I walked to the phone, found Nancy's number on the list, and quickly punched the numbers. It rang once. The thought crossed my mind that I might be the butt of some practical joke. The voice on the other side of the door erased any such suspicion. The pathetic quality of the wailing and pleading were beyond all but the most accomplished actor. Two rings and still no answer. Not surprising, since the owner of the house wasn't anywhere near her phone. Three rings, and my patience with Mr. and Mrs. Allen was all but exhausted. Nancy needed help, and they had me performing some silly... Hello? At first, I was too stunned to respond. It was Nancy's voice, calm and composed. Hello? Nancy? Yes? Who's this? It's, uh... Tommy, Tommy Dillon, we met this afternoon. Oh, sure. What can I do for you, Tommy? Is everything quite all right, Nancy? As oh, right as rain. Why do you ask? I hesitated. Well, you're not going to believe this, but I could have sworn you were on the front porch of the Allens house. You see, just a moment ago, there was an insistent pounding at the door and then somebody asking for help, and it sounded exactly Don't like- open the door! Nancy shouted into the phone. Whatever you do, don't open the door. Do you understand? I don't think I understand anything about... I'm safe and sound in my own house, Nancy assured me. Don't worry about me, and don't open the door. You do just what Jeremy and Allison tell you to do. I nodded stupidly and returned the phone to its cradle. The commotion at the front door ceased abruptly. I took a step toward the window overlooking the front porch, and Jeremy trained his gun on me. I stopped abruptly. Just want to take a peek out the window, my good man. I'll steer clear of the door, I argued. Jeremy shook his head. You can't look, either, he said. Before I could respond to Jeremy's, what I considered, ridiculous order, I heard something scraping along the north side of the house. This sound more than the combined admonitions of Mr. and Mrs. Allen and Nancy Calloway, convinced me that something was truly amiss in the village. I never thought a sound could have such a profoundly disturbing effect on me. Words alone cannot describe the sound with anything resembling justice. It must be sufficient to record the sound possessed a sinister, insidious quality, capable of activating an atavistic fear that threatened to completely unnerve me. Whatever was responsible for creating the noise... Stopped as he reached the dining room window. The window moved slightly as something attempted to gain entry. To my relief, I saw the window was latched. The sound resumed and continued along the side of the house and on into the backyard. A dead silence surrounded us. I glanced around the room. All eyes pivoted away from the dining room window. And toward the hallway running from the front of the house to the kitchen, located at the rear of the house. Allison was in a position such that she was able to peer down the length of the hallway directly at the back door. Her eyes and mouth began widening, growing into ever-expanding circles, until she was nothing more than a cartoon caricature. Her throat and lower jaw labored grotesquely. Oh my! She managed to choke out in a barely audible tone. I forgot to lock... As soon as I realized what the problem was, I moved rapidly toward the hallway. As I came abreast of Allison, the back door came into view. I could see the handle twisting ominously. I rushed toward the door, tripped on the edge of the carpet, and went sliding on the tiled surface of the kitchen, eventually smashing headlong into the door. I could feel the door being pushed against me from the outside. I quickly turned my body sideways against the door and did my best to keep it closed. Perhaps on a carpeted floor I could have maintained my position, but the tiles in the kitchen were far too slick to gain any type of purchase. My hands and feet began sliding along the tiles as the pressure on the other side steadily increased. My fingers squeaked along the floor a fraction of an inch. Then another. At last, the door opened a crack. I felt a wisp of cool night air tickle the back of my neck. Closely associated with the breeze was an indescribable stench. Body ached from the unaccustomed exertion. I redoubled my efforts, but still the door continued its inexorable movement inwards. Through the haze of the pain and the noxious odor, I heard heavy footsteps, the steps of a running man, and then Jeremy's body unpacked at the door. His timely assistance turned the tide. The door began a slow swing in the opposite direction. A few more seconds passed before I heard the latch engage. Jeremy quickly turned the key in the lock before helping me to my feet. Overcome with events, Allison slumped to the floor and began sobbing. Jeremy sat next to Allison and did his best to comfort her while I leaned against the door and collected my breath. What was that thing? I demanded. Jeremy shrugged. Nobody knows, he assured me. Nobody wants to know. Just the sight of it can ruin a man's mind. That's why you wouldn't let me. That's why I wouldn't let you look out the window. Jeremy confirmed. The children entered the kitchen and huddled with their parents. This is the third year it's paid the town a visit, Jeremy explained. Only comes on Halloween. Jeremy paused in his story as he helped Allison off the floor. JJ, Katie, go make your mom some tea, Jeremy said softly. The children dutifully went about their designated task as Jeremy led Allison into the other room and placed her on the couch near the fire. Jeremy continued. The first year it came, the whole town was having a Halloween party in the school gym. It was kind of a tradition. We always kept the door locked during those parties, because we had problems in the past with kids coming into the school when we weren't looking and causing vandalism of one kind or another. It was right after dark that someone started banging on the front door of the school. Jim Stevens, he was closest, went around the corner to see who it was, The rest of us thought it might be an emergency of some kind, so we stopped all the activities and listened closely. We could hear Jim telling whoever it was to keep their shirt on that he was coming as fast as he could. We heard him open the door, and then, and then he let out a scream. It was a scream like, well, I've never heard anything like it before or since. We closed the door to the gym, locked it, and huddled in there like scared rabbits all night long, darn near the whole town. You mean, nobody went to help this, this Jim Stevens? I asked, immediately regretting the question. Jeremy stared at me. Mister, you're in no position to pass judgment on us. We're not ashamed of anything we did that night. If you'd been there that night, if you'd heard that scream, you would have done the same. It was an abandon all hope, ye who enter here type of scream. Everyone in that gym knew, 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 just as sure as the sun rises in the east, that Jim was beyond any help we could give him. I could only nod feebly. At first light, we opened the door to the gym, and found Jim lying next to the outside door. I was surprised at the condition of his body. What with that terrible scream, I expected him to be torn limb from limb, blood and body parts scattered everywhere, but it wasn't like that. It wasn't like that at all. His body was intact face down but intact i was the one that turned him over jeremy winced at the memory his face was distorted the eyes were gone and the mouth the mouth was stretched out like jim was still screaming just like in that famous picture his face was all puckered up too like like a prune It looked like something had put its mouth around Jim's face and started sucking on it and didn't stop until Jim's soul got pulled out of his body right through his eye sockets. Of course, there was an investigation, I began, that found nothing, Jeremy finished. My expression must have mirrored my doubts, for Jeremy expanded on his explanation. Demons don't leave footprints, or fingerprints, or DNA, or whatever else makes for a successful investigation. Then that's what you... The town that is concluded demonic activity i asked what else could we think especially after it came back the next halloween of course we weren't sure it would return just as a precaution though we all decided it would be best if nobody went out after dark it still managed to kill how i asked it fooled todd and susie miller the same way it fooled you tonight when it imitated nancy's voice Todd heard what he thought was his neighbor at the door asking for help. Susie was putting their baby daughter to bed when she heard Todd open the door and start screaming. She stayed in her daughter's bedroom and locked the door. She said she could hear something, roaming around the house, opening doors, scratching the walls. It tried to get into the bedroom too. It imitated Todd's voice. It begged to be let in, but Susie wouldn't budge. Susie said the thing stayed in the hallway for a while. She could see its shadow moving around underneath the bedroom door, then finally went away just before daylight. Did anyone think to set up a camera? I asked naively. Paul Lindsay, Jeremy said, nodding. He set up a video camera on his front porch and turned it on just before dark. He heard knocking at his door about an hour after he started the camera, but he didn't answer the door. The next day... He marched into the diner with his camera and told everybody he got the killer on film. He looked through the viewfinder and started replaying the tape. He'd fast-forward a little, stop, look at the tape, stop, fast-forward. After a few minutes, he found what he'd been looking for. People in the diner at the time said he smiled for a fraction of a second, just like he'd won a race. Then his expression changed. Completely. Everyone who saw him said they'd never seen anyone look so scared. Paul took the tape out, dropped the camera, and left. Didn't anyone ask him later what he saw? Never had a chance. Nobody's seen him since. That was a year ago. His house is just like he left it. We hear rumors every so often that he checked himself into an asylum somewhere upstate. After seeing what it did to Paul, nobody's had the nerve to get another picture of this thing. I could only shake my head in astonishment. Surely some agency, some organization can help? I suggested. Who? An agency of the federal government? Jeremy said derisively. For all we know, they're behind the whole thing. Word did get out to the media people, but the only ones who took an interest were the tabloids. What little credibility we had was gone after they got a hold of the story. Why? I wondered out loud. Why bother this little town? Seems everyone's got a theory about that, but there seems to be one more popular than the rest. It goes like this. Being a little town, we don't have much available in the way of entertainment. No plays, no operas, no zoos, you know what I mean. So, we put all our effort into the holidays. We really go all out for Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas, Valentine's Day, St. Patrick's Day, 4th of July, all of them. Jeremy looked at me as if I should understand. Well, don't you see? He asked. We're so enthusiastic about it that something feels right at home here on Halloween. It feels, I don't know, comfortable here. I suppose Jeremy could be right. The entity may very well have been attracted to the village on account of the enthusiasm of the inhabitants for a holiday that many view as satanic. But why would the entity continue to appear after the village stopped celebrating Halloween? I thought about the situation quite often after leaving the village and eventually developed my own theory. Everyone has no doubt heard the term opposites attract. Now the reader will perhaps understand why I went to such great pains at the beginning of this tale to construct an atmosphere of banality. At this point, the reader should also perceive why I am of the opinion that comfortable surroundings make for a better horror story. It is my firm belief that the particular little village in this story was so average, so ordinary, so normal, that it attracted, just like the opposite poles on a magnet will attract each other, the abnormal, the paranormal. Furthermore, the paranormal entity chose to make its appearance into the normal on the only day acceptable for it to do so, Halloween. Halloween became its only window of opportunity. Thus, as long as that sleepy little village remains the way it is, it will continue to attract the paranormal. The music in this episode was scored by David May and I want to thank him profusely for sharing his talents. If you think future episodes would benefit from utilizing a score, please let me know. Also, Halloween is just around the corner. (laughs) Have a happy Halloween, everyone, and I'll see you on the other side. Once again, I'm James Allen May, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of October by May. October by May is a bi-weekly podcast with new episodes every other Tuesday, so make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a single sojourn into October. Please leave us a rating and review, as well as any comments or replies that you may have for us. Also visit us at OctoberByMay.com for more info, as well as links to the books by Edward T. May. The Knock at the Door by Edward T. May Recitation and audio design by James Allen May. Theme by Hassan Nazari Rabadi.